seats. Uh, and also I want to say uh, welcome to anyone who's watching us via the internet. It's good to worship the Lord and hard to believe this is actually the last Sunday of Advent. Uh, Christmas is this week. Um, I don't know for you, but uh, for me, I feel like this year has kind of flown by, even though it's kind of an odd year. Uh, it had its moments where it was felt like it's dragging. Uh, but anyways, here we are, and it's good to worship the Lord in this house uh, together as a church. It's just going to give you a couple of reminders. Uh, first is that uh, we are planning on having our Christmas Eve service. It'll be at 6.30 p.m. Uh, so this Thursday. Uh, you do need to RSVP ahead of time, so please uh, send uh, an email to uh, admin at s ccnh.com or just let me know. Uh, we need to have those RSVPs in as soon as possible uh, so we know how to uh, arrange the seats and make sure that uh, we can fit everybody in. If not, we'll open up an overflow uh, down in the fellowship hall. And then the other quick announcement I have is that uh, if you haven't submitted a prayer request for the 2021 uh, prayer booklet, please do that as soon as possible as well. Uh, please, uh, it's just the same, uh, same email address, uh, admin at secnh.com, or if you'd like, uh, you can write it down on a piece of paper and hand it to me, and I'll make sure that uh, I get that to Marissa, and she'll include that in next year's uh, prayer booklet, along with an updated picture if you want an updated picture. So those are the uh, reminders I have for you, and we're going to, before we transition to a time of worshiping the Lord through songs, we're going to have our, our Advent reading, and for that, um, Boyd and Rhonda Stevens are going to help us out with that. And so after we're done, um, Chris will lead us uh, in a time of worship. So. Our Bible reading this morning is from Romans. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 25-26. The looming question in the Bible from the moment Adam and Eve sinned until the birth of Christ was, how can sinful man be reconciled with God? If God is holy and just, how can man, in his pervasive state of sin and unrighteousness, ever be reunited with God? If this is to happen, it cannot be accomplished with our own hands. No matter how hard we try, we cannot do anything to earn God's forgiveness. If reconciliation is going to happen, it must come from God's own hand. In the very garden where Adam and Eve sinned against God and etched into stone our perpetual state of separation from God, we see God beginning to pursue the reconciliation with his rebellious people. He slaughtered animals to cover his children's nakedness, a foreshadow of the righteous, the righteous clothing that will cover our sins. And then later, God established the priestly order. Through priests, sacrifices and offerings are made to God. Offerings given by the people in order to temporarily alleviate God's righteous wrath against the sins of his people. That is why Romans tells us that God had passed over former sins. That is, the sins of his people under the old covenant. 
But if we need full and complete reconciliation with God, we need more than his passing over of our sins. As time progresses, the ultimate question is never answered. Until Christ comes, Matthew 1.21 tells us that Jesus will save his people from their sins. That is what we need. Jesus is not just another sacrificial offering by which God passes over our sins. The passage in Matthew does not say that Jesus will pass over our sins, but that he will save us from our sins. And how can sinful man be reconciled with a just and holy God? Through Jesus Christ. You see, God cannot simply forgive us our sins because that would not make him just. Justice seeks the punishment of the guilty. But to remain just means that he has to do more than just pass over our sins. He must do something to eradicate it, because that is what his holiness requires. The only way to do that is through the sending of his son. God shows himself just by placing our sins upon his son and punishing them on his son. In this way, he shows himself just because he has done more than just pass over sins. He has dealt with it decisively and eradicated it. At the same time, he shows himself merciful because that forces him to lavish us with grace and to prove that this was the right and only way for man to be reconciled with him. He resurrected his son from the dead. The question has been finally answered, and we are all reconciled with God So as we think about the holiday season, let us never forget that burning question that still must be answered today. Let us praise the Lord because he has provided an answer. And we see it in the baby laying in the manger, born of a virgin, praised by the angels of heaven, and witnessed by shepherds and Gentiles. And today we light the candle of peace. Amen. And as we, as we start our time of worship together today, um, why can we have peace? Well, we know that he rules the world. Amen. And, and so that's what alleviates a lot of our fears, a lot of our anxieties, a lot of the hope that we have comes from the fact that we don't have to run the world. He does. We trust that. So why don't you stand? We're going to sing this last verse of Joy to the World uh, just to get in our minds that he's the one that rules this earth. He's the king over everything. Um, we're going to have a beautiful time of worship together this song today. the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love Bible says that God gave him the name that is above every other name, and he is worthy of that name. Amen. Let's just sing this together. 
of the Son of Man, stories of a Savior, and holiness with human hands, treasure for the traitor, no ear has heard, no eye has seen. of the Father until heaven came to live with me a rescue like no other so you are worthy you are worthy of your name you are
sing that one more time before we move on and just meditating. One of the things we're going to sing over and over again in heaven is that he's worthy. This does not get old. If he wasn't worthy, we'd have a big problem. Amen. He's worthy of that name that is above every name. Philippians 2, he became obedient even to death on a cross. So God has exalted him and given him that name. And he is worthy of it. Christmas songs together this morning as we think about the birth of our Savior, that worthy Savior.
We declare that this morning, glory, glory to the newborn king, all the glory, because you're worthy of all of it. We just give all of it to you, all the praise, all the honor, all the glory in Jesus. Beautiful name. We pray and sing. Amen. Amen. Yes. Have a seat. Lord, we come before you this morning praying to the one who is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We come to you, Lord, the one who has secured for us this eternal peace and reconciliation with God, the one who has opened a way for us to be able to pray with God, the one who has made it possible for us to be declared children of the living God. We worship you and we praise you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you continue to do for us. Lord, and we, we thank you for the holiday season. We thank you for bringing us this far into, 
a very difficult year. And Lord, we thank you because we can come together on Sunday mornings and to celebrate and to rejoice over what you have done for us, even though we rejoice each and every season because of the gospel, because of everything that you have accomplished for us on the cross, Jesus Christ. But we thank you because of this season that we can give special attention to what you've done for us. Lord, and as we look forward to the holiday season, Lord, we recognize the fact that it can be as wonderful and as, as joyful as it may be, that it can also be very distracting. distracting. Distracting us from the one who is the author of life, the one who has given to us the greatest gift, who is Jesus Christ. Lord, so we pray as we, as we go about uh, our week, as we see the lights and the different houses, as we see the ornaments, as we see the, the gifts and receiving gift gifts, as we sing carols, Lord, may we remind, be reminded of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who came to this virgin woman, born in a stable, given to us so that we may have life in his name. Lord, and as we think about those in our church, Lord, those who cannot meet with friends or family members because of COVID because of sickness or illness, Lord, we pray that you would dispense to them a special measure of your grace and your peace and your joy. Lord, that this would be a time where your people would reflect on the gospel, perhaps more so than the rest of the year, perhaps than any other holiday season. That this may be a time when we can devote just even just a little bit more time to reflecting on the gospel, perhaps reading the Christmas story in the gospel, and letting our hearts be warmed and filled with joy because of this great, this great gift given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray for those, Lord, who for the holiday season is mixed with a little bit of sadness. God, we pray that your peace would rest in their hearts. We pray that you would draw near to them, that you would comfort them, that you would remind them, Lord, that you love them, that you care for them, and that you are always there for them. Lord, we pray that That as this, as this holiday season, Lord, as we come together, whether it's in person or whether it's via online, meeting with friends or family, Lord, as we mail gifts and receive gifts, as we give gifts in person, 
Lord, would you help us and protect our hearts from becoming too content and satisfied in gifts. Lord, I'm reminded of the prophet Elisha who was in despair because he thought he was the only one who was worshiping God. But you comforted him and you told him that you had kept 7,000 people who have not bowed to Baal. Lord, I'm thankful that I am surrounded by many who have not bowed the knee to materialism. And I pray that you may remind us this holiday season of the true meaning of Christmas, of where our joy ultimately rests, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. That even as we receive and give gifts, that this would elevate our joy in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that this holiday season would be a time when the gospel would be much more boldly proclaimed. That we would not shy away from giving the greatest gift in the gospel of Jesus Christ by sharing the gospel with people. We pray, Lord, also that during this holiday season, during this week, Lord, as you continue to dispense your wonderful common grace upon the world, that you would give an extra measure of your grace to still the heart of man so that there would be some sense of peace, that this holiday season may not be remembered or marked by hatred or animosity or, or violence. Lord, we trust you for all of these things. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and the opportunity to rejoice in him this morning. And we just conclude our time of prayer by praying to you and asking you, Lord, for the same things that Jesus prayed for when he taught us to pray in the Gospels, where he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So please turn to Genesis chapter 3. You might find it strange because Genesis 3, if you're familiar with your Bibles, Genesis 3 isn't a particularly good story. <laughs> but I assure you, it is the holiday season. It is a Christmas-themed Christmas sermon, but I want to take you to the very beginning, Genesis chapter chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 20 to the end of the chapter. After this, we'll actually work our way back a little bit further, and then go forward to better news. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. This is after Adam and Eve sinned. It says, and God made them, gave them the curse. It says, the man, sorry, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, 
the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you may open our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive your word. Lord, I pray that as we listen to your word, that this would increase our joy in Jesus Christ, that this would remind us of the gospel and where our true sense of peace and joy comes from. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We value peace, we love peace, we desire peace, we want peace in every aspect of our lives, right? Peace helps make life that much more enjoyable, because without peace, well, life isn't really all that enjoyable, is it? But even if we should have a sense of peace in every aspect of our life, it doesn't necessarily mean that we may actually have peace. So what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes to have peace, you require required to know all the facts, all the knowledge, all the details. So say, for example, you're getting together with family members this holiday season, and there's somebody, there's a family member, maybe a cousin, maybe it's even a parent, who has maybe a grudge. Maybe they have failed to forgive you for something that you may have done unintentionally. Or maybe that's you. Or maybe you have something against somebody in your family and you have yet to talk to that person about it. In that sense, there really isn't any, there isn't, that relationship isn't marked by peace. Or let's say you're going to work on a Monday morning. You're not expecting anything bad to happen, but what you don't know is that the week before, your company has decided to, to downsize and your boss has decided that this would be your last week. But if you knew that, you would say that you definitely didn't have any peace. Or let's say you have a terminal illness and you're not even aware of it. That if you did know, would probably maybe turn your life upside down. You might perceive to have peace, but you don't know everything. right? You don't know that it's a family member who doesn't particularly like you for some reason or has something against you. You have no idea that that might be your last week at work. You had no idea that you have a terminal illness. You think that there's peace when there really isn't. Having peace means a lot to us. We want peace. We try to pursue peace. But even if we should have peace in every aspect of our lives, let's say we don't have a terminal illness. Let's say that there's peace in our family relationships with our friends We're not going to get fired. We say we have peace and we know for certain that there's nothing wrong. Even having any kind of peace, even having this wonderful peace and that kind of peace may actually prevent you from pursuing a peace that matters most. And there's a peace with God. Why, Why do I need God? Why do I need the Lord? Everything is fine in my life. I don't need anything else. The Bible is a story of peace. It might not seem like it when you read through the Bible, right? When you, especially when you read the Old Testament, when you read 
of sin and transgression and offenses, if you read of the judgment of God, if you read of people falling away from God, as you read about nations warring and fighting, about hostility, disunity, enmity, right? It might seem like the Bible is anything but peace. But I assure you it is about peace. More specifically, it's about a story concerning a pursuit of peace. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of give you a very, very broad biblical theology of peace, taking us from the very beginning and how this peace was lost, and then bringing us to the New Testament, really from bookend to bookend, from Genesis to, to Revelation, kind of drawing out this theme of peace. So first, beginning in Genesis, we see peace lost. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then afterwards, God finding them out, he brings the curse upon them. And he says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I will, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what we see here in that garden is a temptation. So there won't be a, an in-depth analysis, but I want to show you just the peace that was there and how that peace was lost. Man was created by God and he had peace. Yes, there was nothing but peace in the garden. I mean, it tells us that, that the Lord even walked with man in that garden. Man had communion. Man had fellowship with God. And the serpent enters the picture and tempts them to sin against God, coming out of a sinful desire. And so when they were tempted by the serpent, to take of this tree, to take the fruit of this tree that they were forbidden to eat from, 
Right? God commanded that you shall not eat of it because the day you do, you will surely die. But they were tempted to take of this fruit. And in that moment, we see that they were not wholeheartedly devoted to God in that moment. Right? Later on, God tells us, and Jesus will also go on to say the same thing, that this is the first and great commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. It's a calling for us to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. And in that moment, Adam and Eve were not wholeheartedly devoted to God. But there was a tension. They wanted something more. And not only that, but as they were tempted to take of this fruit, there was a desire for more than what God has given to them. They wanted to become like God. They wanted to become independent from God. The only one who is independent in the truest sense of the word is God. In the sense that he does not need anyone, he does not need anything, he does not need food to live. He does not even need companionship and love and fellowship because he has that within himself with God the Son and with God the Trinity. But man will never become independent in the fullest sense of the word because he will always need some sort of companionship. He will always need some kind of fellowship. He will always need some kind of love. He will always need something tangible. And not only that, but God made the world, and God is the one who continues to sustain the world because the sun rises each morning because God willed it. And God can take it away at any moment. We, no matter if you are atheist or not, you are dependent upon God. But man, in that moment of temptation, wanted to be independent from God. I want to be God so that I no longer need God. It's like bringing children into the world, giving them love, support, giving them clothing, giving them food, giving them a place to live. And then suddenly one day they decide, you know what, mom and dad, I don't want you anymore. Becky has wonderful parents over there. I'd rather have them. Essentially what that looks like in the garden. When they were wanting to be independent from God. We don't want you, God, anymore. Rather than have you as a father, I'd rather be God myself. Ultimately, it was just a lack of satisfaction in God. God was no longer enough. They were discontent with God. And so in that moment, that peace between God and man was severed. It was lost. And then as a result come the curses, which is a consequence, which are consequences of that peace being lost. First, we have an enemy now on our pursuit. The devil hates God, and he he hates everyone, and he he will always try to lure and tempt and entice people and get them to be established in what is false. But the New Testament tells us he has also a special hatred towards Christians, trying to entice them and lure them away from the living God. And so the devil has a special target placed upon Christians, but also there's a special attention, I think, given to mothers and offspring. Right in the curses, there's this enmity between the woman and the serpent, the offspring of the woman and the serpent. 
And we see, I think, in the, New, in, the, in the Bible, this diabolical intent, this diabolical desire to snuff out children. We see, for example, in Pharaoh, when he had the God's people enslaved and they were becoming numerous, he was afraid that they would become too numerous and too powerful, and so he commanded the midwives to kill all the male children coming out of the womb. And then later on, in the New Testament, with the birth of Jesus Christ, Herod feared another king taking his place, and so he had every male executed, killed, that were two years old and younger. Every child is made in the image of God, and every child has the potential of becoming a God worshiper. And so the devil hates the children of men. So that we see because this peace with God has been lost, one of the consequences is that we have made an enemy. An enemy that is on our word pursuit. And then there's the curses given to the woman. And here we see the consequences of this peace, of this, of this loss of peace, of peace. And namely, in that there's marital tension now, right? If you are married, you know this as you know this from experience, right? You might get married, you might have a a, year, a week of bliss, a few months, maybe even a year if you're lucky, until you get into that first fight. That marital tension that there is now is because that peace was first lost in the garden. Right, and it's worse for many, for many people in the world. Right, there's adultery, there's affairs, there's emotional, there's physical abuse. And that all stems from this peace that was lost in the garden. And then to the man, it's a cursing of the ground. And we see this peace, the consequences of this loss of peace. So the ground will no longer yield its fruit willingly and peaceably with ease. But instead, it's going to be drudgery. It's going to be work. It's going to be hard. It's going to be laborious. So man now spends decades of his life in hard work, even as that hard work at times takes a toll on his life. Emotional, mental, physical. Right, and that ground may not, it's not, it's not just the physical ground, but I think the ground is also intended to be kind of illustrative or metaphorical. The ground or the garden of your home, the garden of your marriage, the garden of your children, the garden of your relationships is going to require work to maintain that doesn't always come with ease. And then the ultimate result or the last result is death. Right, this is what God warned about. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And death is the ultimate consequence. It's a consummation of the separation between God and man. Now, cruel punishment, yes. Might even seem like it's hard to bear, too hard to bear. But why such a cruel punishment? Well, God means to show us that apart from sin, apart from sin, everything holds together. 
But once sin enters the world and severs that relationship, that peaceful relationship between God and men, well, then everything else tends to deteriorate. When we sin against God, we are desiring to live a life apart from God. And if we wish to do so, if we wish to desire, if we wish to head in that direction that leads further and further away from God, then we must also suffer the consequences of living a life apart from God. And so everything is being pulled apart. It's like a rubber band, like a resistance band, like those, those resistance bands that people use to, to work out with instead of dumbbells, those weights. It's like those resistance bells, or resistance bands, like they, they're, it's elasticity, right? It keeps, it, it gives it, uh, you, can, you can bend it, right? It, 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 you can stretch it, but it's also strong that it requires an incredible amount of strength to be able to rip it apart. God is holding all things together, but it doesn't mean that there isn't any resistance. There's a lot of resistance. The reason why it's not ripping apart is because God continues to hold it together. But there is tension. And as long as there is tension, where there is, then there will never be a permanent and everlasting peace. It can get exhausting, you sweat, and it can hurt. So in the very beginning, we see that man walked with God and he had this peace and then he lost that peace through his own sin. But then, God pursues his people. We see that this peace is pursued. God is pursuing reconciliation with his people. We see this time and time again throughout the scriptures. We see this in the Exodus, where where God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and God means to bring them out, deliver them, to bring them to their own place so that God can establish a relationship with them so that they are called his people and that he is called their God. And the establishment of the priesthood, whether a specific tribe of people from the Israel are, are brought forward to be priests unto God and the special people within that tribe called high priests who are called to take the offerings of the people, the sacrifices of God's people, and prepare them in an altar, and they are intended to be intermediaries between God and men. And this is a way that God means to pursue reconciliation with his people. And then time and time again, however, people continue to, to, to fail, to, uh, to, uh, to sin and offend God and, and become wayward, and God, as a punishment, brings other nations to oppress them and, and suppress them. And they call out to God, and God gives them deliverers or judges or prophets to bring them into deliverance and save them, and everything is fine. But then it goes to that cycle over and over again. It's, it's God intended to, to, to pursue reconciliation with his people. And then we have the establishment of kings, kings who are intended, kind of like priests, to be intermediaries, intermediaries between God and his people, kings who are who are established in order to lead people to God. That's why we have King David in the scriptures, who is described as a man after God's own heart. And when the king follows God, well, generally the people also follow God as well. It was God's means of pursuing reconciliation with his people. But then we have, but then the kings are sinful, right? Then we have Solomon, who started out well, but then towards the end of his life, after marrying many foreign wives, wives who enticed him to pursue after other gods, he was no longer wholeheartedly devoted to God. But instead, he decided only to give a piece of his heart to God, but in a piece to Baal, 
peace to this other god, peace to this other god, and all that, and so on, and so on, and so on. And the people followed after him. And God continues to pursue reconciliation with his people time and time again, but they continue to fail, they continue to be wayward people, until finally we have the exile where God brings other nations to suppress them and bring them out of their promised land as exiles. But even then, God sends prophets to call them back to repentance. Repent! Turn them back to the Lord. And through those prophets, we have these promises or these predictions of peace. For example, in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, it tells us, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Hosea 2.23, it says, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. Another prophet is Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, we have this promise of peace. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Covenant was another means by which God was pursuing reconciliation with his people and peace. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God has always been in this pursuit of peace. Even though man is the one who is at fault for losing that peace in the first place, God is the one who is always taking initiative in pursuing peace and reconciliation with his people. Not because he's obligated to, but because he wants to. Because he made us for himself. He's always taking initiative in pursuing peace and reconciliation. But we see time and time again that people continue to fail, no matter how hard God tries to pursue reconciliation with them. There's a problem, right? And the problem is the heart. The problem is that we have come from Adam, Adam who sinned. And so like Adam, our hearts are bent inward. Our hearts are bent towards sin. And so that is why, no matter how God relentlessly pursues reconciliation with his people, they continue to be wayward. They continue to backslide. They continue to turn away from God. So we require this heart change. And that's what Jeremiah was pointing us to. That man needs a new heart. But how can man be given a new heart? How can this peace come about? So thirdly, as we come into then the New Testament, specifically the gospel, we see this peace restored. And we see this peace namely in the birth of Jesus Christ. 
as we read in the Gospels and the Christmas story, we read of the angels who declare the birth of a child, declare the coming of a prince of peace. Now, this prince of peace was coming through an obscure woman named Mary, coming from the line of David. That's all we know about her. We have no idea why God chose her, but we know that God chose her and that God chose that this prince of peace would be born into the world, just like you and I are born into the world. And that this peace also, we read in the gospel, in the Christmas story, that this peace was declared, declared to shepherds. It wasn't declared in, the, in, the, in public streets, like you would hear a town crier declaring the announcement of a king. It didn't come in a public place. It didn't come in the city, the crowded streets of Jerusalem. This announcement was declared to angels in the middle of the night, or declared to shepherds in the middle of the night. This peace arrives in a small town. This peace arrives in a, in a manger, in a stable for animals. Right, such a declaration, such a proclamation you would never expect. You would expect that kind of announcement to come to palaces, to mansions, to crowded streets where people would hear. But it was an obscure message coming to this unknown woman, coming to these unknown shepherds in the middle of the night in this unknown place. But it was a glorious and a wonderful announcement. And Mary, the virgin who gave birth to our Prince of Peace in the Magnificat, where she was praising and exalting the Lord, she says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Right? We cannot have peace without the mercy of God. We need that mercy because we are sinners. So we need mercy in order to have this peace. And the proclamation of the angels in the middle of the night, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among with those with whom he is well pleased. A whole host of angels were declaring this peace on earth through this peace bringer. And when we come to the gospel of John, John declares to us how man receives peace. John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who received this prince of peace, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's Hosea language right there. Remember what Hosea said in that passage I read to you earlier, that those who are not my people, he will call my people, and that they will be called children of God. And here is John essentially saying the very same thing, that this one, if you believe in his name, the name of this peace bringer, that you will receive the right to become a child of God. Because we're all born of Adam. We are children of Adam. But anyone who receives the name of Jesus, who believes in the name of this priest bringer, will be born again, not by blood, not by the will of flesh, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. 
this right to become a child of God comes to us through faith. But that still doesn't answer the question of how this peace is even established. How exactly do we, can we have peace with God? In Matthew 21, it tells us that she, the virgin, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It is through the salvation of our sins that this peace comes to us. But how exactly does this peace bringer save us from our sins? Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. That is, by Jesus' obedience, we are made righteous. Jesus' obedience to the point of death, it tells us in the scriptures, to the point of death, even death on the cross. We are made righteous and declared to be children of the living God. Jesus, who is the new Adam, the second Adam, has come into the world to bring about a new birth. Through his name. So that is how we receive that Jesus' obedience to the point of death. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, took our sins upon himself, took the penalty of our sins upon himself, took the death that we deserved upon himself so that we may be spared. And Jesus rose from the dead three days later, showing that God was pleased with that sacrifice, that Jesus has a secured for us an eternal peace with God. And so through Jesus Christ, we have this eternal peace. So then fast forward to Revelation 21, verse 1, which speaks to the peace that we now have with God through Jesus Christ. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Then in chapter 22, it tells us, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. tree of life. Remember the tree of life back in Genesis that was protected by a cherubim and a flaming sword so that if Adam ever attempted to come and take the fruit of that tree, he would have been snuffed out by the flaming sword of the cherubim. But now we read here in, these, in this picture of the end of this, this new city, this new Jerusalem, we see, we read of the tree of life 
but there isn't the flaming swords anymore. There isn't a chair, meaning that there's unrestricted access to this tree of life. And it's accessible to us because Jesus took the flaming swords of the wrath of God so that we may take of this fruit freely. Jesus did this for us. And so if you don't, right, if you don't have this peace with God through believing in Jesus Christ, whether you're here or you are watching us on the internet, you may have peace in your life. You may not be worried or anxious about anything. But I want to tell you that there is a peace that you don't have that you need so desperately, and that is a peace with God that only comes through Jesus Christ. Seek that peace. Believe in Jesus to have that eternal peace. Right, for some, right, your life may not be filled with any kind of peace. It might be filled with worry, anxiety, and distress. And having peace in God may not, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have peace horizontally in your life. But having peace with God means that you can then have the strength, the encouragement, and the hope to endure those seasons filled with anxiety and distress. That only comes by believing in Jesus Christ. Dear believer, dear Christian, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. By all means, enjoy the holidays. Enjoy receiving and giving gifts. Just remember that you have already received the greatest gift, and that is peace with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth to bridge, to be a bridge between us and God. And maybe... Maybe you don't have anything to look forward to this holiday season. Maybe you're eager for the holiday season to be over for whatever reason. Maybe you don't have good family relationships. Maybe you won't be able to see anybody because of COVID or whatever the case may be. And I'm, I'm going to be praying for you for the grace and the strength of God to be with you. But remember that you can still have a sense of joy because you have peace with God. God loves you, and he has been on this pursuit of reconciliation from the very beginning of the world, and he has secured that peace by giving to you Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins. And that's the greatest gift that you can have, and that is a gift worthy of celebrating, not just this season, but in every season. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, we, we rejoice because you have given us peace. Thank you for reminding us of how this peace was lost and how this peace was then again found. And the answer was Jesus Christ. Jesus, it is through Jesus that we are given a new heart. It is through Jesus that we become children of the living God. And as his children, we are loved. We are cared for. We are provided for. And we are kept. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. You paid a dear price, a heavy price, for our sake. And now you reign in heaven 
interceding for us, being a tangible reminder of the fact that we now have peace with God in your name. We thank you, Jesus, and may we be reminded of this peace this holiday season. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's just stand and praise Jesus together. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Amen. Let's just stand and sing this beautiful song together today. In holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Amen. Yeah.
One more time. His power. Oh, His power. In glory. Evermore proclaim. Amen. Amen. You guys never see. She reveals them, and it is a cousin named Jesus. For he? For he, the people. She reveals them, and it is a cousin named Jesus. For he? For he, the people from the south. Matthew. Matthew. One. Yay! The guy in the town is David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Luke 2, 11. Luke 2, 13 and 14. And suddenly, there's with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and death on the cross. Philippians 2 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Philippians 2.9 So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Philippians 2.10 Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2.11. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> that was wonderful. Yeah. I, 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 I'm sure that uh, the parents know that, that that was probably, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Uh, but it was, it was fun. Man, what a, what a joy. Uh, to see that, um, and what a joy it is to celebrate with you uh, this morning. Um, remember, we have our Christmas Eve service that you're all invited to. Remember to RSVP for that. Um, uh, but if I if I don't see you before then, uh, Merry Christmas. I hope that it's enjoyable for you. And um, I don't think we need to do a, a benediction because I think those were wonderful benedictions for us. So um, you are dismissed. Um, and uh, Lord willing, I'll see you Thursday, if not uh, the following Sunday, if not sooner.